Here is an excerpt from the audiobook, Fauci, The Bernie Madoff of AIDS, and the HIV Ponzi Scheme that Conceals the Chronic Fatigue Syndrome Epidemic. You can listen to the full audiobook on Spotify for free if you have a premium subscription. Click the link below. Chronic Fatigue Syndrome and the HIV Ponzi Scheme November 2, 1984 was an especially tragic day in the chronic fatigue syndrome-slash-AIDS epidemic. That was the day Anthony Fauci became the director of the National Institutes of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, NIAID. It was the day a thin-skinned, physically ultra-diminutive man with a legendary Napoleonic attitude was positioned by destiny to become the de facto AIDS czar. In the fog of culpability that constitutes what could be called Holocaust II, one thing is clear, the buck, on its way to the very top of the government, at least pauses at the megalomaniac desk of Anthony Fauci. In his book, Good Intentions, Bruce Nussbaum writes, Fauci looked as if he had just stepped out of a limousine. Trim and athletic, Fauci's tailored suits, cufflinked shirts, and aviator glasses set him far apart from the rest of the scientists and administrators at the NIH. Fauci had risen quickly at NIH. According to Nisbaum, he began work at NIH in 1968 after his residency, and by 1977, he was deputy clinical director of NIAID. Nisbaum describes Fauci as an aggressive administrator, not a details man, a big-picture kind of guy. Nisbaum reports that Fauci saw AIDS as a dreadful disease and an opportunity for NIAID to grow into a much bigger, more powerful institute. AIDS was his big chance. He wasn't known as a brilliant scientist, and he had little background in managing a big bureaucracy, but Fauci did have ambition and drive to spare. This lackluster scientist was about to find his true vocation, empire building. Unfortunately, the empire his extreme ambition would build was Holocaust II. If the mantra during Watergate was follow the money, the mantra for uncovering the crimes of Holocaust II, other than follow the heterosexism, could be follow the empire building. And one of the morals of the story is that lackluster can have extreme consequences. According to Nussbaum, in order to make his dreams come true, Fauci had to fight for a bigger piece of the AIDS research pie, which he succeeded at by getting a sizable amount of the funds that Congress appropriated for AIDS research. Fauci also had to fight to get AIDS out of the claws of the National Cancer Institute where the virus that was believed to be the cause of AIDS had been discovered or, more accurately, stolen. Fauci argued that it was his institute's right to take on the lion's share of the research because, although AIDS did involve cancer, Kaposi's sarcoma, it was, after all, an infectious disease. Fauci got his way and his success is reflected in the evolving financial numbers Nussbaum provides. A growing budget for AIDS research, like a rising tide, lifted Tony Fauci's profile considerably on the NIH campus. In 1982, NIAID received $297,000 in AIDS funding. In 1986, it received $63 million. In 1987, the sum reached $146 million. By 1990, NIAID's annual AIDS funding was pushing half a billion dollars. Tony Fauci's ship had come in. Fauci's ship coming in meant the gay communities would be sinking fast. It would fall to Anthony Fauci to be the enforcer-in-chief of the homodemiological HIV-AIDS and chronic fatigue syndrome is not AIDS paradigms of Holocaust too. No one can argue that he didn't do a spectacular job of paradigm enforcement for three dreadful decades. 
Starting in the mid-1980s, an organization called the American Foundation for AIDS Research, AMFAR, played a multifaceted role of raising money for HIV research and enlisting celebrities in a glamorous and ultimately shameful HIV propaganda campaign that made the putatively private organization essentially a de facto arm of the government's HIV-AIDS establishment. If one considers the HIV theory of AIDS a Potemkin biomedical village that gays were forced to live in, then AMFAR is one of its leading real estate agents. John Lauritsen, in his book, The AIDS War, writes that AMFAR was founded as an alternative to the AIDS establishment to provide funding for research that was not predicated on the AIDS virus hypothesis. It didn't last long. I am not aware that even a penny has ever been given to a researcher who publicly expressed doubts as to the etiological role of HIV or the benefits of the nucleoside analogs. In addition to becoming one of the leading private promoters of the government's HIV-AIDS paradigm propaganda, AMFAR played a disturbing role in squelching serious scientific criticism of the HIV hypothesis and in helping turn the entire field of AIDS into a world of heterosexist, totalitarian, and abnormal science. Lauritsen describes an historically important AMFAR moment in the AIDS disaster in his first book Poison by Prescription, a scientific forum on the etiology of AIDS, sponsored by the American Foundation for AIDS Research, AMFAR, was held on April 9, 1988 at the George Washington University in Washington, D.C. In the words of the AMFAR fact sheet, the forum was convened to critically examine the evidence that human immunodeficiency virus, HIV, or other agents give rise to the disease complex, known as AIDS. According to Lauritsen, it was supposedly an opportunity for Peter Duisberg, the University of California at Berkeley retrovirologist who first challenged the HIV theory of AIDS to confront members of the AIDS establishment over their hypothesis. He reports, however, that despite these praiseworthy intentions, the forum appears to have had a hidden agenda to discredit Duisberg. Lauritsen characterized the forum as a kangaroo court. The forum would make a great scene in a play about the nasty, zany world of AIDS and HIV pseudoscience. It was anything but an honest, open collegial discussion about the nature of AIDS. Scientific philosopher Thomas Kuhn would roll over in his grave if anyone called it genuinely scientific. By Kuhn's standards, some of the leading voices at the forum may have even demonstrated that they should not even have been considered real scientists. Politicians, yes, scientists not so much. Even the HIV theory's acolyte, Michael Spector, the reporter from the Washington Post, and future New Yorker writer, who was among the 17 journalists at the forum, saw through the charade, noting that the meeting was billed as a scientific forum on the cause of AIDS, but was really an attempt to put Duisberg's theories to rest. It was more like they wanted to put Duisberg himself permanently to rest. The meeting had the tone and style that was endemic to HIV-AIDS research and characteristic of abnormal and totalitarian science. Lauritsen reported that, while no blows were struck, some of the HIV protagonists fell below the standards of civility that are expected in scholarly debate. At all times, Duisberg retained good manners and a sense of humor, in the face of invective, insults, and clowning from his opponents. One of the signs that AIDS in general was being conducted in the opposite world of what could be called abnormal, totalitarian science was the uncanny willingness of the scientists to abandon the traditional rules of evidence known as Koch's postulates. Instead, AIDS researchers, including the ones at the AMFAR forum, 
were willing to revise Koch's in a more permissive direction, it would no longer be necessary to find the microbe in all cases of the disease. Mere correlations between microbial antibodies and the progression of the disease would be sufficient. HIV could be proved epidemiologically to be the cause of AIDS. Given the unrecognized sexual politics of the science that was operative among this crowd, they were basically saying, without realizing it, that causation could be established homodemiologically. The presumptions of heterosexist and political epidemiology would trump the traditional rules of evidence. And those rules could basically be summed up as heads I win and tails you lose. You basically being gays and eventually blacks. Lauritsen caught the powerful HIV advocates in the act of doublespeak that is common to abnormal, totalitarian science. Actually, the HIV advocates talked out of both sides of their mouths with regard to Koch's postulates. On the one hand, they disparaged them as in need of modification, read abandonment, on the other hand, they were doing their best to come up with data that would satisfy at least the first postulate. Duisburg's opponents at the forum included a living, breathing example of scientific conflict of interest, William Hasseltine, a scientist who was in the process of making a lot of money from HIV testing, and Anthony Fauci, the empire-building director of NIAID.